Sundance fan. Got my friend Mark Etienne on the mic with me, and sometimes with the, my guests, you just gotta let their brilliance shine and sit back and don't ask a lot of questions. And so you'll hear an extended remix Mark Etienne's story to begin the podcast. I'm gonna tell you, boy, he answered probably seven questions I would have asked him as he described his journey. So. Hope you enjoyed the conversation because I sure did. Because Mark and I keep it real, and as the title of the podcast is, he shows up as who he is, and so do I. Take a listen, y'all. Peace. Rondering's fam, we got my former New Leaders colleague, fellow ride or die New Yorker, who now lives in Maryland. My buddy, my boy, Mark Etienne. What's going on, Mark? I'm good, my brother. How you doing? It's a day to time, man. It is a day to time, but um, I'm doing well. I appreciate you asking. Mark, it's a real treat. Uh, we talked about before we got on the uh, the podcast, me doing a little bit of relentless, respectful badgering of you to make sure that you responded. I must have texted you, I don't know what, like three times. And you're like, oh, I'm busy. and I was like, nope, I'm not going to forget because just like my mom, if I wanted something, I don't forget. And so- I'm just glad that we were able to make the space and time for us to to chop it up. No, I appreciate it. I, I definitely am, am honored and grateful to have this opportunity, first and foremost, to just connect with you. We've always had a good relationship. I think we've always learned a lot from each other. Yeah. And also just, uh, you know, to continue to explore the wor- world of podcasting um, and just chopping it up about really important topics that you and I constantly chop it up about. So. I appreciate this opportunity. I'm glad to be here. And I apologize for making you have to come after me like that. I'm still trying to figure out how to get less busy. So I'm very, very glad to be here. What will have to happen is when you create your own podcast, I will then play the rule of three. I will wait three times before I finally finalize a time to get on your podcast. How does that sound? (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely fair enough. I can live with that. I could definitely live with that. Um, so Mark, let's start off. What's your story? Wow. So I'm a New Yorker, like you said, born and raised. I was born in Harlem. I was raised in the Bronx. I'm going to try not to make this long, but I have a, you know, like all of us, we have a journey. So I grew up in originally two parent household, uh, with a younger brother. My parents are Haitian immigrants. Being Haitian is a huge part of my identity. Haiti's in the CONCACAF Gold Cup right now. And I have a younger cousin, my godson. Who plays for the Haitian national team is a very oh, big what? deal. Ooh. Yeah, very, mm. very, very big deal for us. Okay, um, our family has come full circle in terms of like you know sometimes families are close and they disband and they come back together. So we're going to descend on Charlotte, July second. There are forty of us coming to see this match, Haiti versus Honduras. We've rented homes. We have all kinds of plans to celebrate our family and our, and our legacy. We're all very proud of um, Fafa. Fafa Pico was his name. He's number 14, and he represents the best of us. And so I think mm. my wife and I organized this. We wanted to bring the family back together again okay. because of all the different things that have happened over time. So yeah. being Haitian is very, very important uh, part of who I am and part of my story. So growing up in, in Harlem, I grew up the first half of my childhood very, very um, closed in, you know, didn't go outside much, went to very elite private schools that my parents have to pay a lot of money for. But I did very well in school. And when I was going into first grade to get into this very elite private school, 
Uh, this is something that I always remember is I played a huge role in my life. That they did not want to let me in. And I, at this point mm. in my life, subscribed that to race because once I eventually got into the school, I was the only uh, chocolate chip in the cookie. And so <laughs> for a while... Man, one chocolate chip in a cookie is not a chocolate chip cookie, not, brother. Not, Good, not, come on now. Putting a lot of pressure on, on, the, on the other ingredients, right? So mm. I remember distinctly going to the school with my mom and my mom talking to like three different people, like literally pleading with them to give me a chance. And finally, one of them directed me to the first grade teacher who would eventually become my first grade teacher. And the first grade teacher said, okay, let me hear him read. And so she asked me to pick a book. And then there was someone else there that said, no, we'll pick the book. And I remember that because the book I was going to pick is the book that she, is the book that she picked. And in my mind, I was like, why don't you just let me pick the book? I was going to pick the same book. Mm. So I read, I read the book with joy. I read with intonation. I paused with periods and commas. And you know, question marks, all the things you're looking for in a first grade reading. I was reading fluently and I was comprehending in first grade and they were blown away. So they admitted me and gave us a partial scholarship. But I always remembered, like, why didn't they want me? Like, what was, what was the big deal? Like, this is a school. I know how to read. I'm smart. I want to go to school. Like, why wouldn't you want me in this school? And I never really, that never left me. That always stuck with me. Even when I went to the school, even when I would sit in class and have relationships with classmates and teachers, in the back of my mind, I had in my head that I wasn't wanted in this school. And so we lived in Harlem, and eventually we moved to the Bronx, northwest section of the Bronx, the Marble Hill, Kingsbridge area. And at that time, I remember distinctly being in seventh grade or maybe sixth grade talking to some friends. We had all white teachers. We had no very few teachers of color, if any. And so there's one teacher used to really get on us. And by us, I mean black boys in the classroom. Now, I should say that because of the education I got at this elite private school, when I came to the Bronx, it was in this parochial school. I was in eighth grade doing like sixth grade work. Like I could do this stuff in my sleep. I didn't do homework. I didn't study for tests. Yeah. I was really bored and just cutting up. So I remember the teacher said something about being black, like black people this or black people that. And my boys got offended. Like, they were really pissed. So we're walking home. And one of them said something like, man, you know what I'm saying? Being black, da 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 You know what I mean, Mark? And I was like, kind of. They were like, what do you mean, kind of? And I was like, y'all know I'm Haitian. And they stopped walking. And they looked at me like, what? What do you mean? And in my mind, at 11, 12 years old, I had separated being Haitian from being black. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. So in my household... We ate different types of food. We spoke different language, right? We had a whole culture. And I guess at the time, what I was thinking in my 12-year-old mind was, there's a difference between being from Haiti, being from Jamaica, being from Trinidad, being from Bermuda, being from an island in the Caribbean or Puerto Rico or DR or, or Cuba or wherever, right? Another country with a culture, with a language, with history, and then being African-American, born generationally in this country without those things or with yeah. those things, but in a different type of context. Yeah. And so my friends stopped me and we had this long, I'm talking about my mom is freaking out because she don't know why I haven't come off from school yet. Cause mm. we're sitting in the pizza shop and they're schooling me and they're explaining like, you know, black is black. Like if, if you don't, if you aren't white and you're Brown, it's the same difference. If you're from India and you don't look like white people, they coming for you. It was the first time that I actually put the two together. And I think that also was a, was a really big part of um, my childhood growing up because I had to 
I, I came home and I talked to my parents about it. And they were like, how could you not know you're black? We're the first, you know that we were the first free, independent black nation in the world. Like, you know, we took, we killed, we, 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 the slave rebellion in 1804 in Haiti was the very first one of its kind. And yeah. Haiti's been paying for it ever since. That's right. It's a huge moment in history. You know all this already. I know you know it because we taught it to you. How could you not know you were black? And I, I couldn't articulate what it meant to be black American or African American. And so I think that that was an imprint on me also because I started to now see how race was playing out in, in my environment, how whiteness was playing out in my environment. I was a little more light-skinned than some friends, and I had some friends that were lighter-skinned than me. And I started noticing, like, wait a minute. There's like, a, there's like levels to this. You know what yeah. I mean? Like people get treated differently based on how they appear, based on how they sound, based on how they look. And I and I, I think at that moment I dedicated myself to fighting against this mess, this anti-blackness, this racism. But I didn't understand it yet. I move on to high school. I go to a Jesuit high school, and the whole time I'm there, I'm just constantly in conflict with teachers. I got kicked out of religion class because I told the teacher that Christ was black. I had evidence <laughs> to prove it. You know, I was citing mm-hmm. I was citing evidence, textual evidence way back in 1990. You know what I mean? Like says it right here in the Bible, you know, feet of brass and, and, and woolly hair. Like, I don't know any white people that have brass feet and woolly hair. Mind you, I was 13, 14 years old, right? And they just right. weren't listening to me. They, they, they didn't see me for who I was. They didn't understand where I was coming from. And so I took on, like, this villain approach. Like, well, I'm, again, respectful, polite, badgering. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop until I get some answers. Like, you all are teaching me all this stuff that's just, you know, I'm drowning in this viscous whiteness. You know what I mean? And I'm not white. Now, I have some white heritage. There's a reason why I'm a lighter skin than, than other of my colleagues and friends. But, like, you're not speaking to my identity. I don't have any space here where I can be me. You want me to look like you. So in my high school, you know, back in the 90s, right, the, the haircut was the fade and the high top fade and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I came to school with that, I had to get my haircut again. They wouldn't let me in school. They would not let me in class if I had a high top fade. And so we started mm, to argue. Policing hair, mom, even then. Policing Damn. hair. And then I'm sorry, I'm a male. Like, forget about it. I can't even imagine it was like for sisters who's coming, who are coming to school, you know, and for whatever reason, they might have a bad hair day or they didn't get a chance to get their hair done and conflict that they had to go through. So, again, I just took this on as like, a, you're not going to, I'm not going to tolerate this. Like, I, I have a right to be who I am. I have a right to identify how I identify. And I refuse to, to just conform. It's bad enough I got to wear this jacket and tie every day, but you want me to wear my hair? Like, you know, like how come the, how come the, the, the white kids have long hair down to their shoulders? You know, they get to wear their hair anywhere they want. They get to tie it up in a bun and they get to, you know what I mean? Like part it mm. down the middle of part. Like why, why is it? A, like, I don't understand. Like, okay. So I told my headmaster, so if this is the rule for, for us, for our hair, what's the rule for their hair? And I got detention just for asking that question. You know what I mean? Now, what, what saved me is my headmaster was my freshman basketball coach. Uh-huh. And I think I think he saw something in me that I didn't even see yet. And so he protected me. He made sure no matter what teacher wanted me out, no matter, no matter what I said in class or no matter how hard I pushed on something and they sent me to his office, he never spoke, uh, he never talked to me in a way where I felt like I was in trouble. You know, he was like an uncle, you know what I mean? Or like a relative. Yeah. He just sat me down. You know, we talk. He he asked me how I really felt, and he was my basketball coach, right? And so we had a relationship. And I think that without him, I probably wouldn't have made it through that school. Yeah. What do you think he saw in you, Mark? 
Why did he take a liking of, to you? That's a great question. I think that he saw I was a fighter, mm. but I was also very sensitive and I was scared. You know, it was very scary to be at a school where 94% of the kids, are, it's an all boys school, right? Yeah. 94% of the kids are white, right? Mm-hmm. So every day I sit at a table. So imagine a big room, like a cafeteria with like 50 tables and each yeah. table holds, say, I don't know, 10, 20 kids, right? And there's one table and all the black kids, well, relatively all the black kids, maybe three or four or five, maybe are sprinkled throughout. But like one table has maybe one one and a half tables have all black kids. And so you look in this sea of people and they're all white. and We all sit here. The whole room knows it, right? Everybody sees us, right? We're all the black kids. Sit. There's a book. I think Tatum wrote this book. Why do all the black kids sit at the table in the cafeteria? Yep. Like I live that. I mm-hmm. live that. Like everyone else is white. We're sitting here. And I'm navigating the school every day, trying not to be late to class, trying not to look at a teacher the wrong way, trying not to dealing with comments that I'm hearing, little side comments from teachers that I'm hearing that I wasn't tolerating. And I think he saw that even though I was afraid, I wasn't uh, I wasn't afraid to stand up for myself. I wasn't afraid to speak my mind. I worked really, really hard at school. Like I did all my homework. I studied hard. I practiced a lot. At practice, I outworked everybody. I wasn't the best kid on the team, but nobody would outwork me. Nobody would out-rebound me. I could guard anyone. There wasn't anyone on my team that I couldn't mm. lock up on defense because I worked at it. I studied their yeah. moves. I studied what they did. I watched them. You Draymond Green before his Draymond Green came out. Look at that. Something, something like that. I'm a, <laughs> I didn't have the height, though. I might have been tall early, but I lost it after a while. I think he saw that in me, and my mother was also relentless. My mother and him developed a great relationship, a relationship of trust. They both were invested in me being my very best. And so I think he wanted me to figure it out. I think he wanted me to figure out how to be me without all the pretension, without all the, without all the, the noise, you know, without, you know, talking so much and, and being so, so having such bravado. I think he was trying to teach me that, Mark, you don't need all that. Just be yourself. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel safe being myself in that environment, so I had to be tough. And growing up in the Bronx wasn't easy. So I can't count how many times, you know, I watched someone get robbed or guns came out, gun shootouts, a lot of stuff going on. Just getting to school every morning, you had to be ready. Something was going to happen. Somebody was going to try to snap on you on the bus or someone was going (laughs) to break out into a fight. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew a lot of guys from playing ball in the neighborhood in different neighborhoods. And so, you know, just going to school every day at that time uh, wasn't as simple as just getting up, getting on the bus and going to school. Like you had to... You have to be savvy in the street to really understand how to code switch between being on the block and navigating killers, drug dealers, you know, people who dropped out of school, people who were finding different ways to survive. And then going to this elite environment where these kids' parents are like, you know, in government or they own yeah. businesses or they're rich and millionaires. And, they, and you have to live in that environment and thrive and live in the other environment and thrive. And it was taxing. And um, I think... I was bringing some of what I was around into school with me, and he saw that. And I think what he wanted for me was an, an opportunity to put those rocks down and just be myself. So graduated high school, all good, went to school, Buffalo, New York, freezing. It was amazing, but it was also crazy. I had to learn how to take care of myself out there. and I had a mm. great set of friends that I went to high school with, and we all went to college together. Okay. And we, we, held, we held each other down. We did not let each other fail. If one of us wasn't doing well in school, we got on each other about it. Again, uh, we brought the city with us, and that wasn't always a good thing because 
No one likes New Yorkers have a bad habit of being arrogant and snobby sometimes, right? Like, us? we think we get better than everything. Us, New York? Yeah, us, yeah, us. Get the- so, in, in, the same, in the same way in high school, I kind of got into some stuff. I got into some stuff in college. And we, had, we had some confrontations and whatnot. But I think all of that, Ron, was just me trying to find myself, me trying to not have to conform, not have to fit into a box. And I didn't know how, I didn't have a, the skill set or the, the knowledge of how to be myself and still hold my ground and, and live within my identity. And so what I did know how to do is survive. I knew how to fight. I knew how to argue. I knew how to, I knew how to live in conflict and in anger. And mm. I think that took me in a particular direction. And I met some really important people on my journey, like my headmaster, some really important people when I was in school up in Buffalo. That again just helped me to realize like you're doing too much, man. You're working too hard. You don't have to do all that. You have gifts, you have potential, you have a destiny. You were born to do great things. And you all this energy that you're spending, you're moving away from your purpose. You're not moving towards it, you're moving away from it. And I started to listen. And so when I graduated, I had a great opportunity to become a teacher. And I knew this was I knew this was God's plan because I sent my resume to all 32 districts. At the time, New York was in 32 districts across the city. Mm-hmm. And they each had a superintendent and deputy superintendents and all that kind of stuff. So I just do sent my resume, 32 districts. I only got one, I got two responses and one of them canceled on me. And so the second response was from the family academy and they interviewed me. I told them I know nothing about teaching, but I know kids and I know kids in Harlem. I grew up in Harlem. There's nothing I, I could tell you anything about any child in Harlem. This is my home. I know these kids inside out. I know them better than they know themselves because I am one of them. Mm. And so after 45 minutes, they took a chance and they hired me. And David and Meredith Lieben, um, I'll, I'll always be in debt to them for giving me a chance to be myself with yes. kids. And that's the that's the thing. Mm. I didn't know a thing about teaching, but they didn't care about that. They would teach me that over time. What they wanted is someone that the kids would actually believe in, look up to, and see themselves in them. Yeah, and that's what we did, and, I, and I, I taught there for almost five years. I had a great experience, a lot of great friends that are still friends to this day at the Family Academy. Probably my most favorite work experience in my career, and that's saying a lot because you know we had a lot of amazing times at New Leaders, and I've, yeah, I've worked man. in other places as well. But nothing, nothing. But what I learned and how I was able to fill in my skin and be me really began for me when I was a teacher. And a lot of it was learning from my students because your students hold you accountable. You can't, fake, you can't fake in front of them. So if I tried to step out of bounds, they let me know real quick. <laughs> and the parents too, right? Like the parents, especially when you're a teacher and you don't have kids, parents let you know what, what life is really about. And I listened to my parents. And so I began to really um, come into myself and, and step into who I was born to be, learning and teaching at that school. Ultimately, new leaders came around. Jan Coles, I met Jan Coles taking the class at four. Uh, shout out to Jan Coles, yes. Shout out to Jan Coles. Jan Coles, if you ever hear this or see this, I owe everything to you. You were like a mother to me. I love you unconditionally. I, 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 I mm. apologize for being so out of touch. I've got to find my way back and sit down and have a cup of coffee with you because you gave me the confidence that I still hold till this day. Jan met me in a class and then you know, she's the professor, good relationship. It's a class. I'm not even enrolled for a degree. I'm just taking a course on mm-hmm. leadership, nonetheless, mm-hmm. as a teacher. 
Yeah. And then one day she just, she just shows up in my classroom with John Schnur. I think it was either John or Ben Fenton. I can't remember the one. Schnizzle. Ah. Yeah. And they were they had, they had just finished their first year of new leaders and they're recruiting, right? They're trying to find, you know, potential principals. And what I respected about the program is they were breaking the mold, right? Back then, you know this, Ron. Back then to become a principal, you had to go through like decades of toil. Yeah. Yeah, to Go get your master's degree. You have to have the blessing from on high, from a superintendent or something. And there was a line you had to get in, right? You had to be an AP. And some people had been AP for, for 10, 15 years before they yeah. got a shot at being a principal. And then they sucked. They weren't even good. <laughs> they weren't even good principals, right? So you go um, through all this. Fingers on my nose there. Whew. Yeah. So the leaders, you know, the leaders tried to break that mold and find innovative ways to shift the, the direction of leadership and what it meant to lead a school. And not like in a flimsy way, right? They brought the heavy hitters in to train principals. And some people called it a microwave program, you know, all these other, you know, names that they had for it. But in the end, when I think about the the caliber of leaders that came through the program over years and the work that they've done, not only in schools, mind you, but just in general. I mean, we've got politicians, right? We've got people running businesses. And they're they're very (laughs) thorough, thoughtful, caring people that yeah. came to a community that really had strong beliefs and, and was incredibly hardworking. And so I always appreciate the fact that they had a vision of what could be. And what else was I going to do? I mean, I was teaching. I didn't know where I was going to, but I, all I knew is I wanted to be something and I wanted to have an impact. So Jan kept telling me, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And I'm like, Jan, I've barely been teaching five years. You want me to run a school? She's like, everybody here is listening to you already. What's the difference? And when she said that to me, I was like, mm. wait a minute, she's right. And not in like a, I'm running things way, but like people actually were listening to what I had to say. So with training, so New Leaders comes around, I joined New Leaders, one of the most important decisions I made in my life. John Schnur had a lot of faith in me early. I was young. I was a principal at like 26 years old. Mache Ashton had a huge impact on me when I came back after being a principal. With Gene, Gene also was a mentor of mine, Gene Desivine. Shout out to Gene. Gene gets a lot of bad rap in lots of spaces, but at the end of the day, as a Haitian man who grew up the way I grew up in Brooklyn, I grew up in the Bronx, facing a lot of the same things that I faced. Gene Gene never looked back, and he fulfilled his destiny to become someone that could have impact for kids. And he's not he's not just he's not scared to be that. And he also helped me to recognize, you know, what accountability looks like, but also what what your potential can be when you maximize it. And so Gene never gave up on me. Um, until this day, Gene makes it a point to make sure that we keep in touch. And I've always respected him for that. And Mache was just awesome as well. A lot of great people in the leaders. You, so many people that I just connected with and learned from that, again, helped me to realize that I'm here for a reason. Like, I have something to offer. I'm not, I'm not just anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I'm here to do some great stuff. And it's my responsibility to make that happen. And so... Left New Leaders 2013, and then eventually made my way to Maryland 2013, 2014. Met Sonia, Tanalisis. We developed a great relationship. She's another person who put a lot of trust into me, especially in some really tough situations. Never looked back. You know, I came to Sonia one day right before the first day back for PD. And maybe at the end of the day, I can't remember. And I was like, we got to start talking about race. There's too many things happening to children here at the hands of white teachers and we're not talking about race like this is this is we can't let this continue i'm gonna do it like with my principles i'm gonna do it Mm. i'm letting you know that right now 
And if you want to see how I'm going to do it, or if you have reservations, you can come by and I'll share with things that I'm doing with you, but I got to do it. The next year, we rolled out a race equity policy and she hired an executive director for equity. And we did a, they're still doing amazing work around whiteness, anti-blackness in the district mm. so that we can be a lot more thoughtful about kids. So that was mostly my career stuff. The most amazing thing happened to me that happened to me in my life when I was in Haiti. It was in 2000, no, it was 1999 going into 2000. We were there for the Y2K. You know, back then, nobody knew what was going to happen in Y2K. Yeah. So my family said, the hell with it. We're going to go to Haiti. If the United States blows up or falls apart, we'll be safe down here. My mom just um, put uh, crucifixes on every, like, hallway in our house and made sure we had <laughs> two things, tons of water and toilet paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, man. So I'm in, I'm in Haiti with my brother and some cousins, and we had this uh, wild conversation sipping barbancourt. For those of y'all that don't know or not familiar with Haitian food or Haitian culture, barbancourt is Haitian rum. It's probably the best Haitian rum there is in the world. If you haven't tried it yet, I highly recommend it. But definitely go with the five-star. The three-star is for mixing five-star and ice. See me if you're interested in, in barbancourt down the road. Anyway, I'm okay. sipping barbancourt with my cousins. They asked us, we went around asking, like, if you ever got married, who would you marry? And, you know, some of the tough guys, like, I'm never getting married. I'm going to play till I die. I said to myself, I said it first to myself, then I said it out loud. And my brother's my witness. My physical brother's my witness. I said, if I ever got married, I'd marry Rochelle. Now, Rochelle, my, the daughter of my parents' best friends. So my dad and mom had best friends growing up, and their best friends were uh, her parents, they went to high school together. Mm. They dated each other. So like my okay. mom dated her dad. My dad dated her mom kind of thing. Their families know each other. Our families go back to Haiti like four generations. Wow. In terms of friendship. My grandmother and grandfather wrote music and performed Haitian folk music with her grandmother, who was an international opera singer. Damn. Okay. Yeah, they go, they go way, way, mm. way, way back. So generations of friendships. So we're born around the same time. We grew up together. We knew each other since we were young. Her sisters, I still call them my sisters. My brother calls my father-in-law uncle. It's kind of weird, but, you know. The same so, Philippine culture, man. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what it is. You know it runs deep, man. I hear that. Yeah. So I said to them, if I ever married anyone, I'd marry her. You know, because we always had a very tight bond, a very special bond. In, a, in 99, 2000, she's graduating from college and her dad comes over for dinner and we're kicking in. He's like, you know, she's about to graduate with a degree in teaching. So long story short, she comes down to the city. I hadn't seen her in like, I guess, I don't know, six or seven years. And we hang out and I'm taking her around the city. And it was like, you know, those rom-coms where people like fall in love, but they're like, they don't know if they're falling in love. I don't really yeah. like rom-coms, but I figured that's the best way to explain it. <laughs> And I was scared. Like, I didn't, I was young. I, maybe I was 24 or something like that, 25. I didn't, you know, I just came home from school. I'm just figuring things out. But I knew, like, there wasn't a question. I knew that this was my future. And she was relentless. Like, she polite badgering, right? Like, she just would not give up on me. I did all kinds of crazy things, like, you know, uh, to try to dissuade her. Because I didn't want to hurt her, right? I didn't want to be that guy that, like, dragged her along but I, I wanted to be in a relationship, but I just didn't know what to do. Mm. And so finally, I got some great advice from a very close friend. And um, we went out one night, and that was it. Like, the sparks lit. And we've been rolling thick ever ever since. My wife is my best friend. 
I've never loved anyone like I've loved her. And we connected in life early. And so raising mm-hmm. children, going through transitions of work and life, uh, I can't imagine my journey without her. So yeah. I, I'd be remiss if I, didn't, if I didn't acknowledge Rochelle is probably the most important person in my life. And she's been there from as long as far, as far back as I can remember. We, we've been like this. We've been thick as thieves. So, you know, now, present tense, I left the district uh, when my mother-in-law passed. You know, she played a huge role in our household. And at the time, I was also struggling, Ron, because I think before COVID, we were finally starting to make some progress in terms of student proficiency. I think we were really getting to a place of momentum with principals and their staff around really deeply understanding the standards, deeply understanding how to implement a new curricula that Sonia took a chance on. And we were, we were starting to get there, and then COVID hit. And, you know, COVID hit everybody differently. I lost nine close friends and relatives within a span of six months. I was in a space of disequilibrium. Mm. I, at, at some point, I just got numb. Like, who's next? Like, who's gonna, I was scared. Like, I was going to get a call. And I didn't know who it was going to be. I mean, I lost my uncle. I lost close friends that were my age. I lost uh, members of my family, immediate and, and uh, nuclear and extended. So it just really kind of... It threw me off a little bit. And then I started to think through what was happening socially with, with George Floyd. And I think the, the real moment where I just decided I had to do something different was January 6th, believe it or not. Mm. I think when I saw the, the January 6th, in, what do they call it? Not an incursion. What do they call it? There was a debated name for the, when all the white people raided the, the Capitol. Yes, yes. Was it it, was it called an insurrection? I don't know what it was. Insurrection, insurrection. That's it. The insurrection. So I'm watching this live, right? And I'm like in meetings, and I remember saying to the chief of schools, uh, "Are you watching this? Like, are you seeing this? Because he lives in DC. I think he still lives in DC." And he was like, "Oh my god!" And the first thing I thought about was, so I taught social studies as a teacher, and I taught a lot of civics to eighth graders, like the Constitution and what it means to be a civic-minded um, citizen and what your rights are. And I'm watching the kind of like energy of how they're, they're attacking a sacred kind of institution for our democracy. Now, you know, in a different time, I could talk about how democracy really plays out, whether or not it's what it says it is. But at the end of the day, like I kept thinking to myself, if this was, if these were black folk or brown folk or Asian folk or anything but white folk raiding the, the, capital would this be the same outcome so that's the first thing i was struggling with but then You're i thought about what, <laughs> yeah i was like how could this possibly be why are they letting them do this like where are the, where's the reinforcement like how is this even pop it, it, it was a moment where i realized oh my lord they are afraid because of who these people are these are police officers these are firefighters are former military people and so there's a deference happening here i think and like, this is crazy. But more importantly than that, I said to myself, what are we going to tell the kids tomorrow? Because this is going to be all over the world. This is not like, this is right. going to be world news. There's no way they don't hear about this. What, what is a 13-year-old going to walk away with thinking? What is a 10-year-old going to think? What's, what are they going to think in kindergarten? And do we want teachers trying to figure this out on their own? And so we scrambled. I, I got with about three or four people in the district. We pulled together great resources and sent out a really important message that same day. So at least that night, teachers could gather, organize, and be prepared. And we even, I think, I think the chief of schools even sent the message to all teachers saying, it's okay, and principals, it's okay to take time in the morning 
whether you're doing morning circle or whether you're doing some SEL work, right? Where you could just not necessarily start your day the way you typically do, but, you know, have dialogue about this so that kids could actually process this in a way that is, is healthy and productive. And that got me thinking about a whole bunch of other things. Like if, if we could do, if we could have healthy and productive conversations about that, why does it take that for us to have healthy and productive conversations? Why are we ignoring all the things that are happening inside? And I went back to my high school experience. I'm like, you know, being called a, a, a jungle bunny and being called the N word and, mm. you know, being treated differently because of, because of the way I looked or because I wouldn't be quiet. Right. And I thought about the experience that students in Baltimore were having, and students in D.C. are having, students in Newark. When I spent time in Newark uh, with new leaders and just seeing the, the clear segregation that would happen, even though it wasn't supposed to happen, and what's happening in the, in the inner dialogue of students. And I just, I just started realizing that we have to do a lot more of this work in schools so that children can actually feel like it's okay to be me. It's okay to believe what I believe. It's okay to come from where I come from. And I started thinking about the curriculum and where in the curriculum do we see ourselves and how many kids know who Mansa Musa was or how many kids can name a civil rights leader that isn't Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Or, and I just went down this rabbit hole, Ron, of like, what does it really mean to be educated if you're a black child in, in, in the United States, in Baltimore City? And what is our role as educators to make sure that our children are coming up in a way where they, they feel good about themselves and they feel smart beyond being able to read, write, and do math. Like, they feel confident about who they are. And so I started realizing that the work I was doing, this idea of the whole child, especially for children of color, this idea of being confident in your identity and, and understanding what anti-blackness is and understanding what whiteness is and being able to come to school with others and be okay with who you are, I started realizing that my job the work I was doing every day, it was, it was completely absent. None of that was in my job. And so I started to realize that maybe I'm doing the wrong work or maybe it's not the wrong work. Maybe it just needs to be revised somehow. And I, I struggled to find an appetite for that. Like I talked to colleagues of mine, I, I talked to other uh, members of leadership and getting them to, to move in that direction. There were some that were already way ahead of me, right? Like Dr. Durant, who is the executive director of equity in Baltimore City Schools is one of the most important, amazing people I've met. She's way down the road. Like, I'm I'm late. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. I'm trying to catch up to, to the ideas that she has and how she's trying to do it at scale. So her work was to really bring equity to life at scale in the district while I was targeting the schools that I managed. And after my, my, my mother-in-law passed and, and my kids needed more of me and my wife needed more of me, and there was this tension I was feeling with being at work and being at home, I started realizing, like, maybe it's time to shift and, and not necessarily leave education, but just think more carefully about what it means. What, what is a real education for our kids and what does that look like? And how can we ensure that our kids know their past, know who they are, know where they come from and can think for themselves in a way that is beyond just implementation of curriculum and interventions, right? So I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that at that moment, the role that I was in, even though ironically, as the executive director of teaching and learning, that, that's probably the best role you could have to do that work. Yeah. And so I started to try to do that work. And um, again, just with timing, I wasn't able to finish that work. And so I decided to, to leave. I decided to leave the district. I left on good terms. 
at least from my perspective, I left on good terms. I miss a lot of great people that I worked with there, but it was hands down the best decision. I haven't been healthier I, I, unless I go back to like my college days, like psychologically, like the, the burden of working in those places and in nonprofits too. I mean, we felt this, I think, at New Leaders too, this constant sense of urgency. There's only one right way to do things and trying to introduce new ideas often gets shot down, especially if they're coming from people who look like us. These binaries, it either has to be one way or the other way. Individualism, celebrating the individual and not really thinking more carefully about what it means to work collectively. All these things I just kept dealing with every day and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I took a, I took a leap of faith and I stepped back and I, I doubled down and invested in myself. I had already started some consulting work prior. Kate gave me a call. I've known Kate since 2000, 2001. When we both became principals around the same time, we've been friends ever since. We did work in all kinds of places at Unbound Ed. And she's been a fearless, a fearless champion for not only making sure that kids have a chance to get to proficiency with appropriate curriculum and appropriate instruction, but for a white woman, she has put herself out there many times to name anti-blackness and to find ways to, to figure out what it looks like to be anti-racist. And it, sure it hasn't has. always been... Yep. It hasn't always been pretty. She's made mistakes and she's paid for them. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. easy for white, for someone like Kate to, to get on a platform and talk about that, but she does it anyway. And so we got into a conversation and, you know, she, but she's always believed in me and she invited me um, to join Rethink and I'm a partner there now. And we, that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to help people who want to do the right thing be more um, inclusive in workspaces and just in general. So that regardless of how you identify, you should be able to be yourself at work and do good work. The two don't have to be at war with each other. You don't have to look a certain way or sound a certain way, um, or at least you shouldn't have to. And particularly as managers who are responsible for people, uh, responsible for developing people and, and supervising people, it's important for managers to have a lens to look through to understand what it means to be inclusive. Because I think we've all been kind of brainwashed and, and hoodwinked into this very non-inclusive way of being, a very systemic, a white supremacist systemic way of being where whiteness prevails. And I think that um, it's, it's toxic and it's dangerous and it doesn't have to be that way anymore. There's a swell right now in our country where people are breaking free of those chains and we refuse to have to conform, which has been like the story of my life. I just refuse to conform. Yeah. And sometimes when I look back, I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I look back with like, and I and I, I cringe at like the way I spoke in meetings and the way I uh, I dressed, you know, and the way I moved because I code switched. I knew what I had to say and how to say it to raise that money or to convince that that person in that meeting or or to be able to even hold my 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 space in this room. I had to conform, and I look back like, God, I can't believe I did that. And I just, I've taken a stance now that I, I don't have to do that anymore. And I refuse to do that anymore. And so I'm, I'm finding new ways to be, which is more in line with who I believe I am and what my values are. I'm encouraging other people to, to take that chance and, and acknowledge and identify where whiteness exists and prevails. And more importantly, where anti-blackness is and just see it for what it is, regardless of who they are. Because it's not about People. It's not about whether people individually are racist, prejudiced, or biased. I mean, there's a lot of that. But I think being aware of how the systems that we live in every day are designed in a way to enforce this idea of whiteness 
the more we recognize that and the more we feel comfortable addressing that and, and, and unsubscribing from that, I think is, is where a lot of my energy is now. And I'm trying to find ways to do that where I can be of service and help and also make enough money to pay the bills, right? So I'm in a good space. I'm in a, I feel like I've come full circle. There's a lot of stuff I'm leaving out from, from my journey, but I think that's a good summary of it. And I think moving forward, I want to figure out how to maximize my skill set and what I can bring to others in a way that is fun, right? One of my rules as a teacher and a principal, and I used to tell my principals when I was a principal supervisor, is if I'm not having fun, then I'm not learning. And if we're not having fun, then we're not doing the right work. Something's wrong. If we're not having fun, something's wrong. Now, you can't have fun all the time. But when we're doing our work, we should experience joy. Mm. And if we're not experiencing joy, then something is fundamentally wrong. And we need to be able to fix that. And that's what I want to do. I want to enjoy the work that I do. I want to make a good earning and living for it so I can pay for my kids to go to college. Trying to get kids to college these days seems like an impossibility. But, you know, <laughs> we're just going to keep badgering until we get them through. So yeah, that's my story, Morning Glory. Well, Mark, I got to tell you, we are at the 40-minute mark. And what I realized with your story is that I was just sitting back and listening, chiming in here and there. You had so much to say. It's like you dropped a double album on us <laughs> with your story. No, and I, know you said you, I know you said you left things out, but you know, you know, a couple of thoughts and comments on your story, right? And I'm tying together other people that we've talked to, right? Bring Kate to the space. She's also part of the Rondrings family, right? Did a podcast where she talked about everyone deserves to be healed and to be loved. That's the work you've been doing without even using that terminology, right? I'm bringing together someone else into the space. I just interviewed you yesterday. If you remember her, I don't know if y'all overlap when you were at New Leaders, but you probably know her name, Stephanie Morimoto, who's now- Of course, I know the, Stephanie. The CEO of Asutra, right? And she was talking mm -hmm. about her own journey of self-care, identities and all of these things, right? And so there are a couple of things that I'm tying together here, which is just one, you talking about, and this is shameless plug here, you intuitively went into the leveraging the people you love and care about personally, professionally, as part of your story. Most people do, right? And you did that, whether it was um, your headmaster, your mom advocating for you mm -hmm. in first grade to get into that private mm -hmm. school, right? And then Stephanie talked with me about seminal moments. I forget the author that she quoted, right? But that everyone has seven seminal moments in your life. And you've had seminal moments that you just described in your journey. So I was like, shoot, I don't need to jump in here because Mark is just, Mark's on the pulpit. He's, going, he's, yeah. he's dropping stuff. And so, but there's something you said at the end that I want to elevate here, right? Because I think it's in time together, everybody that I've interviewed, right? Folks always talk about, Finding their joy, their fun. Mark, what do you do for that? How do you find it? Lots of different ways. I went to yoga this morning. Yoga has been a great space for me to kind of Dope, let man. go of things. Yeah, let go of things I don't need to hold on to. So yoga plays a huge part in my mental and physical health. I probably have the most joy hanging out with my wife. Date nights, we have a ball. We go on date nights. We're going on vacation this summer on a couple's retreat. Can't wait for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Beautiful. Um, spending time with family, the Charlotte trip to see the the, the Gold Cup match. Um, hanging out with my kids, watching, following my son playing AAU basketball all over the country has been amazing. Mm. Watching my daughters uh, do what they do. My oldest is now about to go to college. She's doing so many amazing things. My youngest is just started playing rugby. 
Um, they all get great grades in school. So just connecting with my family, I think, gives me the most joy. I see myself as like this intergenerational bridge. Like I have the old generation that lived in Haiti and they came here for a better life. And so I see my responsibility as like being the foundation for the next generation to come up and, and have a level of freedom and a level of decision making that, that not a lot of us had growing up. Some of us just had to do stuff. We had to get jobs. We had to sacrifice. We had to make sacrifices that were really difficult. And in doing so, we lost parts of ourselves so, the, the, so that we could be in better positions down the road. And I don't want my kids and my nephews and nieces to have to go through that. They are already brilliant. They were born brilliant. Their DNA yeah. contains some of the most amazing skills, opportunities, energies in the universe. I mean, our lineage, um, again, shameless plug about being Haitian, our lineage, our strength, our courage from our culture is, is just, it is so powerful. And so to ensure that they have these opportunities to do whatever it is they want, however they want to, is what I'm focused on. I think anything I do around that really gives me joy as well. Reading is my passion. I love reading. I haven't read fiction in a while, but I try to read as much as I can. And music, hip hop, of course, is, is another one of my passions. I was there, right? I was there in the Bronx in the in the 80s and 90s mm. when it was taking form. So I was at a lot of these events. I met a lot of the rappers that people see now as superstars. It's It's part of my identity as well. And so... A lot of that gives me joy. I'll tell you what doesn't give me joy. What doesn't give me joy is being in spaces where I have to think twice about what I'm going to say and, and who I, how I want to show up and put on a yeah. mask. That's something I forgot to say earlier. I guess I mentioned code switching, but I did a lot of work with, um, and I'm doing this work now about wearing masks. And why? For safety reasons, right? Folks have to wear masks. And mm. I'm in a place now in my life where I'm just really working hard to not have to wear a mask. And one of the things I've always appreciated about you and our friendship is we never have to wear a mask. Like when we kick it, we just kick it. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's, and that, that's yeah, the space. Just show up as you are, man, because if you can't, yeah. then you're getting our representative, man. Our representative yeah. is nowhere near as good looking, as brilliant as who we are. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the space. I want to be in and like in the, in the coaching work that I've done with the coaches and the principals that I coach and the teachers that I coach. And like, I just want people to be who they are. I don't want the fake shit. I want you to be who you are. Even if that means that you and I are on opposite sides of, of a situation, that's okay. Just be who you are and be okay with that. That's something I'm really locked into now. And I also think another thing that I've learned that I'm also trying to promote as much as possible is this idea of growth. and. To me, I've always said this wherever I go. I'm, I'm eventually going to get a tattooed somewhere. I don't know where, but I'm going to get a tattooed on me. This idea that growth and discomfort are inextricably linked. And I think that the more I do the work that I'm doing professionally and personally, I'm realizing that folk who are unwilling to grow are unwilling to grow because they refuse to get uncomfortable. And folks who are constantly pushing themselves into discomfort are growing in exponential ways. And so I have friends that I grew up with, and this is a painful thing for me. I have friends who I grew up with that I was like, you know, neck and neck with, right? Like the same height, you know, same school, same everything, yeah. same block, single mother household, that kind of thing. And I asked myself, like, how did I get here? And why are they where they are? And a lot of them aren't here anymore. A lot of them are dead or, or they're on their way to be dead. Or some of them are locked up. What yeah. happened? Like, what was the difference maker? You know, and I started asking that question. And I think a lot of what I realized is it takes a lot of courage to 
stay in discomfort. And again, going back to, to my experiences, I had people who were brave enough to, to stay with me in my discomfort, to be there side by side with me when I was ready to bail. Like yoga, <laughs> when you're in those poses and you want to get out the pose, right? Or if you're in the gym and you got that weight, you're on that last your shoulders, I tell you that, and then like yeah, having your yeah. legs in that spread and your adductors, I'm like, what? What? Stop. Can I get out the pose? You just want to get out the pose, but if you just hold it, just stay right there. And having somebody with you makes all the difference. And so I also find joy realizing the growth that I'm making because I'm, I'm allowing myself to stay in discomfort and being there for other people to do the same thing. Conversely, ironically enough, I'm actually in a situation right now where I'm realizing I'm kind of stuck because I'm, I'm avoiding some discomfort. And again, a good friend of mine, Kate, you see, if you're hearing this, Kate, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you. <laughs> Need to get you, you know, and Kate on the podcast with me at the same time so y'all can just... I mean, this is... You want to know who a good friend to you is? A good friend is somebody that's going to punch you in the face. I've been in a lot of fights. I have scars on my eyes mm. and my hands being in fights. Some of my best fights were my closest friends. You mm. don't really... You know, I can't... Most of the people I'm very close with, we've had some kind of terrible fight, some type of conflict. It doesn't have to be a physical fight, but some type of, like, beef. And to come through that, to be reconnected again, I think is what strengthens relationships sometimes. If it's always all good, I worry about those relationships. you got to have some type of a disagreement or conflict. Otherwise, you don't really know who you're dealing with. And I think for Kate, we, we always find a way to find our way through disagreement and conflict. And recently, you know, I was a little, you know, I've been holding back on a few things. And there's some things I, I don't want to go back. I've been through so many different scenarios that are similar. I, I just don't want to go back into that discomfort, uncomfortable place. Yeah. And she's like, you know, she's like, you know, when you swim and you're like floating and you're like on your back and your your head's above the water and you're so relaxed. She's like, come mm -hmm. in, the water's great. This this discomfort is just amazing. Like I'm doing it every day. You can do it. And I'm mm -hmm. like, shit. <laughs> You understand? Like, come on now. <laughs> yeah, but she, as a friend, it was not easy for her to say this to me. It, right. it made her very uncomfortable to have to, to jab me and say, "What's up, man? Like, you know, I know you, I know you, and you're you're doing that thing, and you need to stop it." And I could have reacted a hundred different ways. It could have it could have negatively impacted the relationship. It could have, right. you know, could have turned into a thing, but. Good friends, you know, take a risk to, to push you to be uncomfortable. And I've always appreciated my wife for this also because she and I hold each other accountable in ways that are loving, but also aren't always easy. I think that's why we have such a, you know, we have a good marriage, a strong marriage, and it's getting stronger every day. Now, we don't take it for granted. It could easily, you know, unravel. You know this, you're married. It don't take much to take a marriage in a different direction. Yeah. You got to fight. You got to fight every day for it. And so... I'm just grateful that I have people I'm surrounded with that are willing to push me to be uncomfortable because otherwise it's, it's so easy to just stay in a place of comfort. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to spread that, that energy of it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to believe in what's possible if you really want it. It's right there for you to get it. You know, whatever it is you want, you know, your own podcasting company, you know, you want to be superintendent. You want to, you know, make a certain amount of money. It's all right there. You can see it. The question is, are you able to go through what you need to go through to get there? And I want to just wrap this uh, idea up with a shout out to Verda Maloney. Verda Maloney. Is yes. A, I don't know how to describe the relationship I have with Verda. Verda, when I met Verda Maloney, the most, one of the most, if not the most amazing woman, not black woman, 
woman I've ever met. I, the only person I'd probably put above her are my mom and my wife. She is the most amazing person I've met. I don't know anyone like Verda. Verda is amazing because she's always been her. Since the day I met her, she's going to be her no matter what. Amen to that. She's going to be who she is. That's right. Yeah, and I think that Verda's always said this thing to me, and I've never forgotten it. She said, the universe will conspire to give you what you want as long as you really believe it and put it out there. And when she first said this to me, I was like, what kind of esoteric mumbo-jumbo? Like, <laughs> what you talking about? We don't got time for that. Like, we got to get results. We don't got time for this you know, fluffy, you know, above-the-cloud stuff. But I wasn't ready to, to, to hear what she was trying to tell me. And this is like when we first met. But through our relationship, she'd always come back and say that. And then I would start to see it. And I think that a lot of where I am now is because I believed it and I was willing to go through discomfort to get there. And I just worry often that our children, Ron, your children, my children, in an era of social media where shame and guilt is just out there all the time surrounding them, in an area where what you look like is more important than how you feel. I just worry a lot for this generation. I worry a lot about their ability to visualize what they want and then stay in discomfort long enough to go get it. And it's such a universal, ancient idea. I guess it's part of the law of attraction too, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it works and it's true. And I think that when we were growing up and then we were in our training school, that was kind of like the whole meritocracy thing. Pull yourself up by the bootstrap. If you work hard, you can get it. That's some bullshit. And that's a different podcast. Oh, my, Mark, that's going to be, <laughs> I'm building a public speaking business. That's going to be yeah. part of one of my signature speeches is the tension between right. the pull yourself up by the bootstraps, the do it yourself versus yeah. this, uh, Philippine, you know, spiritual value called Kakwa, shared unity, interconnectedness, yes. right? Yes. Because that, your Haitian yes. story, my Philippine story, everybody damn story that's been on this fucking podcast has all been about the people who have pulled them up to be where they are. Yes. You never do this alone. And people tell you that's do exactly this alone. Right. The martyrdom kills us. We know this. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. My father played a huge role too. My mother was very successful in, in the professional world. My father was an entrepreneur. He owned a New York City cab for many, many years, uh, sold his medallion. And my father would always, he's my number one fan. Like, whether I was right or wrong, he had my back. Mm. You know, when I was messing up, when I would get locked up for little dumb things, or, you know, if I got caught up and caught a case on something, or if I was in some trouble, my father wouldn't come down on me hard because he knew who I was. He knew the fight as a black man that I was in. And he just had my back. Until this day, he has my back. You know, he's a big fan. I had a whole community of people, my cousins, my uncles, so many people mm. that always believed in me. Like you said, this interconnectedness, this interwoven community that, right. that always, you know, makes sure that you rise to the top. And again, that's why we're going to Charlotte for, for my cousin Fafa, because we want to get, get behind him and connect him and surround him and, and, and let him know that he's not alone in the fight that he has an international football and whatnot and so you know mm. meritocracy is bullshit and at the same time i'm always gonna hold Verda close to my heart because she taught me if you really believe it and you put it out to the universe just do your very best and stay in that discomfort and the universe will make it happen so shout out to Verda wherever she is promise to the next time i was in new york i'd reach out to see if we could have dinner but that was like three trips ago so like you well bro i'm gonna be in baltimore man if we can um link up while I'm there for a couple of days, let's figure it out. Cause I'm going to be there celebrating the 48th birthday, which is oh, tomorrow. 
Now, I'm not supposed to on podcast talk about time-bound things, but the hell with it. It's my fucking podcast. So, yes, June 28th right. is my motherfucking 48th birthday. Let's go. So, Let's this episode go. will not drop on June 28th, obvi, but That's fine. I'll put it out there so people can hear it. Uh, I, got a new, I got a new spot for us, too. So, when you're ready, I, oh, got, right? you. I got a dope spot for okay. us, too. Well, yeah, I want to tie. Yeah, that spot. Ooh, that spot was yes, 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 yeah, yes. Better one than that. So check this out. So bringing Verta back into the space, the mm-hmm. universe conspires to have you get what you want as long as you believe it. So mm-hmm. and, and put it out there. You got to yeah. really go out there. You got to take the leap of faith. You can't just have it in your head. You got to take steps to get there. So speaking of the spiritual, some might say is the esoteric, I've been seeing a psychic for five years. She's my purpose coach, Julie Chan. And one Mm. of the last things that she intuited for me through reading the Akashic Records is she saw this image for me of a sunflower growing in winter in the sidewalk. Wow. That's a hell of an image. Right? At first, you know, my science brain was like... And then when I started there, it's like, she's like, Ron, unpack that. But what's the, what's the tension? And we're like, the sunflower, those sunflowers need sun and it's growing in winter and the cement. Like, what does that mean? She's like, Ron, you can make anything happen despite your environment. Right. And if I start putting together all the people have helped me out, like that sunflower doesn't grow in the winter, just with me tending to it. I'm bringing together a whole community of people to help me grow it. So, right. and it's uncomfortable if you think about it, like tying together your statement of, of discomfort and using that to make sure you're growing, right? There's a certain level of discomfort that comes with growth, right? And some yeah. folks might be more attuned to discomfort than others, but at the same time, how do you teach it as a concept? So Mark, I'm going to do something a little bit different with the rondering here, because I think there's something that feels really deep around discomfort as a pathway to growth. So riff with me a little bit. I'm giving you the rounding. What do you want to tell our audience about discomfort as a pathway to growth? I just want to say that everybody has the ability to be great. My son often, we watch basketball together and he'll, he'll point out certain athletes and how amazing they are at something, whether it be Steph Curry shooting or, you know, Serena's, Serena's forehand or, Mm. Um, or a serve, right? You know, yeah. we're, we're heavy into sports. Well, sometimes my daughter and I will look at certain actors or actresses and just point out their, their amazing ability to make us forget who they are. And we see the character. And I constantly tell them that it's not that they were born with this skill. They just put in an inordinate amount of practice. And anybody can practice. Practice is not something that is so uncomfortable that like the pose, right? Like you have to fall out of it. Run out of gas. Practice is something you can set. It's it's if you invest in in practicing whatever it is that you enjoy and that you love, over time you will get better at it. And as you get better, your confidence grows. And as your confidence grows, you practice more. As you practice more, you get better. And I have made it. I made a decision very early on in my life to practice. I probably practice what I do more than I should. People used to tease me, and people still tease me about it. If I have to facilitate something, I'll literally rehearse it. I will like put the slides up. I will walk around as if it is live and I will do the thing. And then I will go back and say, okay, I like this. I don't like this. And I'll go over and over and over and I'll practice it. And then when I get in real time and I have to facilitate, I already know what's going to happen before it happens because I've done it already. 
That takes a lot of time. I didn't always do that. I built up to that. So my message to people is, you know, don't be afraid to take some time to practice because practice feels weird at first. Practice is the kind of thing that like, you know, Alan Iverson was like, practice? Yeah, this, we talk about practice. You know, we need practice. Like, I don't need practice. But what what he was talking about was something completely different than the concept of practice. Because if you think about how many shots does Alan Iverson take when he's in high school before he gets to Georgetown? How many hours do he spend dribbling the basketball? Mm-hmm. No one just comes out of their mama able to dribble. Like the, the amount of time that he spent practicing, whether it was football, because he played football also and basketball, is the reason why he is where he is. You know, or whether you're looking at actors like a Denzel. We think about a lot of people see Denzel on state on on camera, but not as many people know how how hard Denzel worked at being on Broadway. And being on stage, like that's where he really worked and on his starting craft. off on soaps like Saint Elsewhere. I mean, he started exactly. way back in the day. I mean, you, you he, know this I mean? is like, going way, way back. Acting for him is something that he's constantly practicing. He's probably practicing right now. He's not somewhere chilling. He's practicing because he loves it. Now, you and I both know if there's something that you really don't like that much, you're not going to practice it, right? Like, you know, I'm not a real tech kind of person, right? So I was at a school recently in Staten Island. And the kids are learning Python. They're creating all kinds of stuff on Python. Wow. And I did some research on what Python is. I mean, they can pretty much turn on anything in the building and shut it down by using code in this building. Like the kids control the whole infrastructure of the building. They create yeah. apps. They, they, they have an AI app that they've created like a bot on the school's website. So if you go to the school's website and you want to figure something out and look for something, instead of going to the search menu, you just hit the bot. Tell it what you want, it pulls it right up for you. And then it gives you multiple options of other types of things that you would want. These are 15 year olds doing this using some language, some computer language yeah. I've never heard of, right? Mm-hmm. So if you said to me, Mark, I want you to get proficient at using Python, I'd probably never do it because I don't have the passion for it. I'm not interested in it. I already hate AI as it is, right? Tech is not my thing. It just isn't. I've never, I've never had a passion for it. I had the stuff. I had MacBooks and iPods and ColecoVision and Atari, you know, all the stuff mm-hmm. growing up. You had the newest version. That's right. right. How it works, opening it up and learning how it works and the engineering of it, never been my passion, right? But whatever your passion is, whatever you really like, whatever you really love, getting into it, practicing it, not listening to what people say, spend your time getting better at something, practicing something, and you'll see your growth. And the more growth you see, the more confidence you gain. And one thing I've learned as a man is in my in my experience, not not that it's any different for any other gender, whether it be woman or any other, uh, however anyone identifies, but in my experience, it's been confidence that has been able to get me through the discomfort, right? And so if I have to like, you know, I don't know, facilitate a session with four, give a keynote as an example. Some people fear public speaking. I still get butterflies. I've done keynotes all over the place. I still get butterflies when I do a keynote. I still get nervous, but I have an inner confidence because I've done it, because I've practiced it, because I've rehearsed it. So I allow myself to believe that I'm going to do well. Even things with my kids, right? Like little things with my kids that like, you know, my, my daughter wants me to go to school with her and I don't know, do something. And I'm like, oh my God, here we go again with whiteness because the school that my kids go to, it's diverse, but it's, it's not as diverse as I'd like. So most of the parents are white. And here I come, and they, they make assumptions about me, and they ask me questions, and 
Mm. You know, my daughter's watching me like, Dad, please don't be an asshole. You know what I mean? <laughs> what I, I want to say is, like, why are you asking me that question? Like, let's get into this. Like, you, did you ask that guy that question? Or ask but my, you know, my kids, you know how kids are. Like, please, Dad, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. So I have to have a sense of, of, of calm and peace and confidence because I've been in those moments before because I've rehearsed, I've practiced. I just think that practice is underrated today, and especially in the young, younger generation. I think young kids today think that they have to be good naturally. And if they're not, something's wrong with them. And I want to encourage as many people that hear this as possible to encourage young people to really dig into practicing something. And if, and if they don't know how to practice, there's so much access now on YouTube and other places. You can actually visually see what it looks like, whether it's playing chess or whether it's, you know, engineering or whether it's, you know, technology or art or whatever it is. There's so much media access now. You can see what it looks like to practice so you can hone your craft. The best people you see do stuff have thousands and thousands of hours of practice. They weren't born that way. And you can be them too if you commit yourself to practicing. So Mm. I think that's what I'd say, Ron, is to to grow through discomfort. The secret sauce, the the, the key tool or weapon, however you want to think about it, is practice. Um, If I had a superpower, I think that's what my superpower would be, is, is, is practicing. I practice mm-hmm. everything that I do that's important to me. Yeah. That's what you and I have in common. I, may, I think about a lot of things in my own life, Mark. I just show up. I'm consistent. When I think about the gains I've made in my powerlifting kettlebell journey, I look back on my attendance at the spot I go to. Shout out to my friends at Ironbound Performance Athletics in Jersey mm-hmm. City. Mm-hmm. I make it to three, four times a week, usually four. Yeah. If I put in my calendar, I make it. The missus knows that about me. Like if I miss a workout, something's happened. It's either work yeah. got in the way or there was something. I don't, I just don't miss workouts because I've made the space and the habit to show up. I'm practicing all these things. The practice shows up on my hands with calluses. The practice yeah. shows up because my traps feel sore than feel usual, yeah. right? But right. you know, the whole idea of being able to show up to practice I think if I if I unwind that, that's an understated part of being able to be in practice is that a lot of it is the consistency of showing up. And then when yeah. you get in the right space and then you get the right mindset, shout out to new leaders in learning orientation, right? Growth mindset. Yep. These are yep. the kinds of things like, and so it is a superpower, right? You know, one thing before I let you talk about, before I let you go, you know, we outlearn people. That's a superpower. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'll tell you something else about practice too that that is um, implicit that I want to make explicit. Yeah, and it's deep. This is a deep thing. I, th- I think this will resonate with you too. So practicing consistently means putting you first. It means making time and space for you before anyone else. And I think that you know mm. some people do not feel that they have the agency to invest in themselves before yes. other responsibilities. And, you know, there's that old saying, put your mask on first, you can help other people, that kind of cliche. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that makes sense. But when life hits you and you got a lot going on, it's easy to say, oh, I can't get to it because I've got I've to serve. I've got to take care of my mom because she's sick. I've got to watch my kids. I, the job, the job, the job, the career, the this, the business. And, it, and it, of course, those things are important, right? It, it's not that those things aren't important. It just takes a fundamental commitment to you, you loving you. You believing in you. And that's deep. Like, I'm not talking about self-esteem. Like, that's one thing growing up in self-esteem. I'm talking about a decision, regardless of where you've been in your journey, to say, 
I am going to make me the number one priority by regularly practicing this thing that is going to help me be a better person. And because I'll be a better person at this, I'm going to be able to help other people. And then within moderation, finding the times that you can get to those other things. It's taking me years to get to a place where I could finally be at peace with investing in myself first because so many other things are pulling on me. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that could resonate with anyone. It's okay to put yourself first. It's probably more than just okay. It's probably the best thing you could do for others is to mm. really practice and be great at what it is that you want to be and fulfill your potential so that you can be great. And in being great, you can really be able to help and support and love other people. Um, if you're not at your best, whether it's mental, physical, spiritual, then you're selling everybody else short. So your best thing you could do is develop yourself and invest in yourself and practice as much as you can in what you love. Mm. So that's the message I want to send. Well, Mark, before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to shout out things going on in life at work. So this is the spot of the podcast. I want to make sure you amplify yeah. things you want to amplify. There's a lot of articles in Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Time Magazine, The Atlantic about workspaces and quiet quitting and like the whole fight around working from home, or working remotely, and my manager doesn't care about me. And why am I working so hard for people who don't love me and all this kind of stuff? And I just want to say that there are ways of being that need to be considered to break free from this idea of, of the structures that we all came up in, these structures of, of whiteness, these structures of oppression, non-inclusive spaces. And that's what we do every think. Every think we re-examine what it could be to be in workspaces where you can be your full self, your full identity, collaborate with others, break away from this idea of non-inclusion and be more inclusive. But like anything, it takes practice, it takes investment, it takes careful examination, self-awareness. And so that's the work that we do, the professional learning, through coaching, through, through planning and designing with, mm -hmm. with clients. And so if you believe that you can be a better manager and be more inclusive, if you want to be more inclusive, if you want to change the way in which you work or are thinking about ways to do that, reach out to us. You can find us at rethink.us. You can find mm -hmm. me at mark, M-A-R-C dot E-T-I-E-N-N-E at rethink.us. And we'd be happy to have a conversation about what you're facing, what you're working with, and what possible opportunities we might be able to help you think about enjoying your work in a different way. So that's one thing. I also want to send a big shout out to a huge, huge influence in my life and a great friend of mine, Charles Adams, who is the executive ah. director of the, the Lion Story. The Lion Story. Charles and I are cohort mates and leaders. He's yes. had an amazing, amazing, amazing career. He is a devoted family man, husband, father. Um, I have a group that I'm a part of that he founded called Motivation from Afar. There are six of us, I believe. We're on a text thread. Every day we, we check in on a text thread, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, marriage, life. And we stay bonded together so that none of us can ever fall apart or, you know, the weakest link is as strong as we're going to be. So we all keep each other strong. Charles really put that together. Anyway, Charles is the executive director at the Lion Story, a nonprofit out of UPenn um, that really thinks about racial literacy and how to think through and, and organize and, and uh, keep yourself rounded in racial situations. They do a lot of amazing uh, professional development for organizations, companies, corporations, schools, just to better understand what's happening in racial situations and how to address them and how to come out of them in a healthy way 
without causing damage or causing harm. Mm. You can see them at lionstory.org. I'm a board member of, of Lion Story. Amazing organization that does the work of Brian and Howard Stevenson, the brothers. Brian Stevenson is known from, from, the, from the story, the book, and the movie that he wrote, Just Mercy, I believe. Yes. And Howard Stevenson has been a researcher and, a, and, a, and a, I believe a psychologist or a physiologist. I can't remember which term. But he's done research on the impact of race on the body and on the consciousness. And so he has a lot of work that's invested in the Lion story. And so together, the two of them have this, this incredible volume of work around the role that race played in human dynamics and human interactions. And the Lion story just teaches that. It teaches what's happening to you. It's teaching why it's happening to you and how you can combat it and turn a racial situation around and make it a more productive conversation, more productive dialogue. Amazing work happening. There are amazing people mm-hmm. out in Philadelphia. Check them out, lionstory.org. And the last thing I'll say is being a teacher is one of the hardest jobs in America. It was like that before the pandemic. I think since the pandemic and all the racial tension that's happened over the last three or four years, it's been very, very difficult to be a teacher. And so for all of you who come into contact with teachers, just be kind to them. Just ask them how they're doing. If you see a teacher online somewhere, like a Starbucks or something, buy their coffee for them. Five dollars won't kill you. You know, but what you would do for that teacher to keep them going in this time, I don't think people understand. They might understand more now that they had to actually be at home with their kids while they were learning. But yeah, now that that's it. gone and things are going back to where they used to be, mm-hmm. our teachers are, are figuratively dying out there. And my heart bleeds for them because it's hard to be a teacher. And yeah. when you see a teacher, just give them a hug. Just Just tell them that you're thinking about them. And I think being a principal is probably the hardest job in America outside of being an armed forces person or a Coast Guard or anything that involves putting your life on the line, firefighters, nurses, that type of thing. I don't know a harder job than being a school principal. Um, It's a thankless job. It's a tiring job. It's a hard job to keep nowadays. And principals, most principals I know across the country, give to others before they give to themselves. And um, that's the truth. It's a special calling to be a leader of a school, especially now that so many schools have these these you have these shootings, you have all these crazy situations. And so, if you see a principal, if you know a principal, shoot them a text message. Just tell them you're thinking about them. Tell them they're doing a good job. If you, if, if you don't know if they're doing a good job or not, so what? The fact that they're still in the job enough is enough to tell them, you know, hang in there. You're doing a good job. I see you. I understand what you're going through. I believe in you. Keep it up. Don't give up. Hang in there. I think education is a really, really important um, place in our country, especially public education. And, and we're losing the fight. We are, we are under pressure. People are, you know, these articles are coming out about what's not working. Our kids aren't learning. And the people who are out there on the front lines, they need everything they can get. So that's the last message I'll offer is wherever you are, whatever you do, if you're not in education, if you are in education, if you know someone that's a teacher or a school leader, reach out to them, guidance counselor, whoever. Just tell them you love them. Tell them you care about them. Tell them you see what they're doing and it matters. And at the end of the day, you're very proud of them and you're happy that they're not giving up. I think that that, that goes a long way for the people in our, in our field. So please, please take a moment to do that if you can. Mark, I got to tell you, I'm sure my listeners after checking this out will want to know when you're one doing your own podcast and when you're doing your own public speaking business, because I got to say the amount of wisdom in this episode is probably worth a season. I appreciate that. From what I've just I've just listened to. So, Mark, love you as a brother. Thank you so much for joining Ronderings. And to my audience, um, just appreciate you all deeply and, you know, allow me the opportunity to 
chat with people that I that I love like Mark. So peace out, everybody. Peace. Man, if you're not amped after listening to Mark's podcast, I I don't know. I don't know if caffeine or Mountain Dew is going to help you. Mark not only gave one rondering, I think he gave his as first guest who's done this like four ronderings. Couldn't keep count after a while. Mark, your your brilliance, your authenticity, your story, and how generous you are just speaks volumes. You leverage people personally, professionally, really easily. You've started reconciling the identities you grew up with and really showing up as this this incredible person, man. Very privileged to have you in my life and Ronderings fan. Check out what Mark Etienne does at Rethink.us. Peace.